Well, good morning. My name is John Allen. Welcome to Risen Church and happy Memorial Day weekend. (laughs) Tomorrow is Memorial Day, but this is definitely Memorial Day weekend. And apparently, uh, I don't know who it was, but somebody partied so hard last night they blew a full transformer and knocked the power out in the whole block. So, um, I don't know how that works. I'm not even quite sure what a transformer is other than, you know, like the cartoon and the movie and stuff. But, um... Apparently that happened, so you can feel it getting a little uh, uh, cooler, hopefully, uh, as things kind of cool down as the AC kicks in here, but um, we, uh, this is why we kind of shortened up worship, so we're going to try and get through this without uh, too much of a, a lingering effect and allowing things to um, cool down here. Uh, but again, this is Memorial Day weekend, so Memorial Day, uh, it, you know, this is the day that it's designed to honor uh, the armed forces who really laid down their lives, paid the ultimate sacrifice, right, at the cost of their own lives, these were those that did not disconnect from what was necessary, but they entered in, right, even at the cost of their own lives. So Memorial Day, though, has become a, a, a very different meaning, I think, to many different people in our nation, um, even maybe even our city, but I think you know, for some it means, you know, kids are out of school, tourists are back, you know, uh, the chaos is here, power doesn't work sometimes, <laughs> so stuff like that. Um, but for most of us, I, I would say specifically in this city, in Virginia Beach, Memorial Day lands with a little more impact, right? Like, I think if you've lived here for any length of time at all, then you either personally know someone who's been killed in action, or you know someone who does know someone who personally, who's been killed in action. That's part of the dynamics of our city. And so when we look back across the landscape of history, it's actually pretty clear that freedom is, in fact, not free, right? Like, it comes at a cost, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't go to the beach and enjoy that freedom to eat hot dogs and do cookouts and, and do all these things. Like, I, I think sometimes we think that it might be disrespectful to just enjoy. I've heard people say, you know, you've lost track of what this weekend is all about, right? Because you're, you're just partying it up. But the reality is, I would say, that it's a great way to honor those sacrifices by entering into the freedom that you've been set free for. Amen? Like, this is for, after all, like, it is for freedom that you have been set free. So in the same way, the best way to honor the sacrifice that Jesus made is to receive the freedom and walk in the freedom that he paid for us at the cross and through the resurrection. And so again, those uh, sacrifices the armed forces made that we, we celebrate Memorial Day, it's barely even a shadow and a glimmer of what Christ has done for us. But the reason it lands so heavy is because sacrifice is powerful right? No greater love has anyone than to lay down his life for his brothers, is what Jesus said. And so, in the same way, the way that we honor sacrifice is by receiving that which has been uh, bought for us, by fully entering into it and being firmly established in all that is available to you because of what he did for you. Oftentimes I think that we think walking 
out this life, we think about how it's only going to benefit us. Like, you think it's about me. Like, I go to church because of what it's going to do for me, or I go to community group because of what it's going to do for me. And we think about it's like a personal thing. But the reality is that there's a sense of debt you owe to the one that paid it all for you. And there's a mission he's called you into, a co-mission that he's empowered you into to walk in that goes way beyond just you and you embettering your life. We're going to talk about that this morning. Because I'm not just talking about the simply associating with Christianity and going to church every now and then, right? I'm talking about being firmly established in Christ. And I'm talking about being rooted I'm talking about being grounded in his love and his mission and purpose. I'm talking about living a life that's pleasing. Say pleasing. A life that's pleasing to God and fruitful in him and thankful for him. Not so you can earn salvation, but because you have it. This is my favorite part in the song that we just sang, right? King of Kings. This is my favorite part. Whenever I hear this, like I feel like everybody should just like sing it louder, Right? Like, I hear like a chorus of angels every time this part comes in. It says, And the church of Christ was born. Then the Spirit lit the flame. Now this gospel truth of old shall not kneel, shall not faint. By his blood and in his name, in his freedom, I am free for the love of Jesus Christ who has resurrected me. Woo! I, I, that fires me up. That's like, this is what he's done for us and what he's called us into. But the only way any of that's possible is if we live firmly established in him. And when we are firmly established in him, we can actually rejoice and be glad even in the midst of difficulty. That's different from anyone else on this planet. And this, is, this world is often difficult, right? Right? Like, pain is very real. Wickedness and sin and death are all very real and even primary in this fallen, messed up world that's run and ruled and reigning in sin and death. But this is why it's so powerful that Jesus has conquered all of that and he now reigns. But we live in an in-between world where he rules and reigns in and through us. But we live in a world that's still jacked up and twisted, right? So when we hear about a school full of innocent children being shot up and so many families devastated by just senseless evil, like how do you rejoice in that? Well, you don't. You don't rejoice in that at all. You rejoice in the one who has overcome all of that. Right? You rejoice in the reality that he has placed his spirit and his covenant family in and amongst the people of Uvalde, Texas. Think about that. There are people there, his hands and his feet, who are a place of comfort and refuge and hope in the midst of so much sorrow and grief. That's why I pray for the church specifically, because they are the hope of the world in that place. And it speaks to your own mission and commission here in Virginia Beach. So we rejoice in the fact that in him, we have a firm foundation, even when the realities of this crazy world are exposed, and then they come crashing down. The thing that stands firm is that which is rooted, grounded, and firmly established in Christ. Say, in Christ. 
So that's why we pray for the church. Again, that's why it, 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 they are the conduits of his grace and the only true help in time of trouble because of Jesus. Because in Christ, again, we're rooted, we're grounded, we're established, we're commissioned to bring everyone around us into that reality of who he is. Now, it doesn't mean we don't mourn, right? It doesn't mean we're just like, oh, it's fine. <laughs> Jesus is king. What are you crying about? Like, Jesus himself didn't even do that. We saw that last week in John 11. We see that Jesus mourns with those who mourn, and he weeps with those who weep. But in Christ, we don't mourn as those without hope. Just as Jesus saw to the other side in the midst of his suffering, we just sang about, for the joy that was set before him, even in the darkest chaos of the cross, he looks beyond. And because of what Christ did for us, we now have even a greater hope. Because Jesus promised us in this life we would face tribulation, but he also commanded us to take heart or take courage, for he has overcome the world. This is what he's offered us. And he calls us to root ourselves and firmly establish ourselves in it. That he was forsaken of the cross, so we will never be forsaken in this life or the next. So he promised to never leave us nor forsake us, which means that we can rejoice and be glad even in the midst of of difficulty. So what does it look like, though? What does it look like to be firmly established in Christ in the midst of a fallen world? It's a good question. So this is the heart behind the Apostle Paul's spirit-filled letter to the ancient church in Colossae. We're going to talk about this um, this morning. We're kicking off our new summer series in the book of Colossians, and the name of this is firmly established. We've got a cool artwork on the screen. No, we don't. Because the power was out this morning. Just kidding. You'll see it. It's great. Um, so it, firmly established is the name of our new series. Uh, and and it, it's, the heart here is coming out of Colossians 2, verse 6 through 7, which says this. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So this morning, we're going to read through the first 14 verses of Colossians 1 and specifically look at how Paul demonstrates the power of thanksgiving in prayer as a major part or aspect of being firmly established in Christ. Because prayer and thanksgiving, it's not just something that we do before we eat or before we go to bed, right? Like it's the very disposition and posture that we take before God in every aspect, every facet of life. Because left to ourselves, though, we tend to fall into self-centeredness, detachment, and complaining, right? Like, we're so hot. You know? Like, I, I'm this is a part of the human heart that you've got to continue. The heart is like, a, a, like a, a, a car that's constantly going out of alignment. You've got to keep your hand on the steering wheel and focus in on what is true about life because this world will suck you into the depths of darkness and pull you into the ditch on either side of the road. And so we have to focus on him, and that happens through prayer and thanksgiving. And it's an intentional thing, right? And it's not just about you feeling better. Again, it's about living in this world as a pillar of strength and life and truth 
and a firm foundation of refuge that's been tapped into the very source of life, right? It's about, it's about pointing a dying world to the only unshakable reality in creation, which is Jesus Christ. He is our firm foundation. He is our cornerstone. He is our king of kings. And so with that, turn with me to Colossians 1, verse 1 through 14. We're going to read through this passage, and then we're going to drop back and point out some context, um, three encouragements, and then a challenge as we close. And so again, as we're going through this, I want you to remember, this is not just about you. The world presents this stuff as how you can live your best life. The motivation is totally self-centered because that's how this world runs. Yes, Jesus loves you. Yes, he cares about you. Yes, it is the best thing you can do. But that's not your motivation. He's called you to something much greater and much bigger. So here's what I want you to get this morning if you get nothing else. Being firmly established in Christ means being firmly established in prayer and thanksgiving. Being firmly established in Christ means being firmly established in prayer and thanksgiving. All right, turn with me to Colossians 1, verse 1. I'm going to read through verses 1 through 14, and then we'll drop back, okay? Um, And walk through this. So, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the world, or sorry, in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy." giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. All right, so three encouragements and a challenge. And I'll let you in on all of them right up front here for a quick roadmap for the rest of our time. The first one, first encouragement, you are part of God's family and the greatest rescue mission in eternity. Two, you have been prayed for. Three, you've been qualified and transferred. Now it's your turn. All right, so here we go. First one, you are a part of God's family and the greatest rescue mission in eternity. So let's, let's bring this letter to life a little bit here with some context, okay? So, Colossae was a, a, an ancient city in Asia Minor, which is now modern-day Turkey, right? It was a Roman area um, in, uh, the, the, in, in Greece, part of the Roman Empire. 
Um, and it was a solid little city. Like it, was, it, it wasn't huge, but it wasn't tiny, right? But it was dwarfed by a much bigger neighbor called Ephesus, which was about 120 miles to the east. All right, we've seen Ephesians. We, we've seen this region was uh, a part of the letters that were written to from John in Revelation, if you were with us in that series. And, um, so not only that, but it was also one of a triad of cities in close proximity to each other. It was Colossae, Hierapolis, and Laodicea. Kind of like Norfolk, Virginia Beach, and Chesapeake, except way smaller. Okay? And so there was nothing really about Colossae that made it stand out, which is probably why Paul never even visited any one of, uh, or sorry, on any one of his three different missionary journeys around the known world, he never once came to Colossae. Because Paul was commissioned by God in the church to take the good news of Jesus Christ to the entire known world. And that's exactly what he did. He, he preaches the good news. He makes disciples who make disciples. He plants churches who would plant churches. From the time Jesus was resurrected and he ascends into heaven and he appears to Paul, Paul begins to then learn and grow and then he takes this on a mission and he takes it to the entire known Roman world at the time, right? But in, in his travels, he never one time went to Colossae. But he did go to Ephesus, which was 120 miles from Colossae. And so during his third missionary journey, Paul didn't just pass through Ephesus. He actually stayed there for two full years, making disciples who would make disciples and planting a church that would then plant many other churches. So while, there, he, while he was there, it's highly likely that this man, Epaphras, that we just read about, encountered the good news of Jesus Christ. In fact, Acts 19 in 1910, it tells us that during those two years in Ephesus, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So a lot of people from the surrounding area would have heard Paul preaching and teaching for those two years and giving the gospel and training up disciples to go make disciples and go plant churches that plant churches. That was what he was doing. And then, but Paul didn't even stay there. He, he was determined to go to Rome, even though he knew he would be killed there. We see throughout this letter, Paul's commission was extremely dangerous, and it's filled with tribulation, and yet he counted it all joy. In fact, even as he writes this letter to the Colossians, he's imprisoned in Rome, and it wouldn't be long before he would be killed. And so he knew this. But during his imprisonment, he spent a lot of time writing letters to the different churches. And then, while he's there, he, he gets a visitor named Epaphras. And so Epaphras tells him all about what God's been doing in Colossae. He tells Paul about an entire church that is growing and flourishing, has been planted in Colossae, in a city that Paul himself had never been to with people that he's never met. And so he's there with Timothy, and, and, and they would have been really pumped to hear this, right? Like apparently Epaphras had traveled to Ephesus, received the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then he gets trained up there, and then he goes back and he plants this church in his city, Colossae. So that's the context here. So he comes to Paul and Timothy here in Rome, and he gives them this good report about what's happening, and he also shares some of the pressures that they're under as a church as well. We're going to get into that later in the letter. This is just context for what we're seeing here. And so Paul and Timothy, they're overjoyed to hear all this. And so they write this letter to the church in Colossae. And so Paul writes to people he's never met in a city he's never been. And yet he makes it clear that they are his beloved and legitimate family members. 
That's the kind of language he uses. Look at the way that he starts this letter. Remember, these are strangers. But look at how he writes to them. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. He's talking about you. He's talking about the Colossians. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God, our Father. So he acknowledges their identity and he acknowledges their legitimacy as brothers and sisters in Christ. This language was not normal. Like we don't get like, because we hear this a lot in like religious circles today, like brother so-and-so and and sister so-and-so. That's new. You need to understand that. So this would, that would have struck something with these people. So he also points out two realities that he's going to expand on throughout this letter. The first reality is, one, they are in Christ. Say, in Christ. And then two, they are in Colossae. So now, I know it says that they are at Colossae. I know the ESV translates it, that it says that they are in Christ at Colossae, right? Brothers and sisters, in Christ, faithful brothers, in Christ at Colossae. But the actual Greek is the same preposition that's used for both. In other words, it's literally to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ in Colossae. That's important. I think it's extremely intentional because he prioritizes their identity over their circumstance. Their identity is in front of and more important than their location. So he's encouraging them that they aren't just Colossians. They are first and foremost Christians firmly and faithfully established in the grace and peace of God as his children because of their faith in Christ. That's important. Because your identity isn't primarily as an American. And it's not primarily as a Virginian. Your identity is first and foremost as a Christian. You've been transferred into a new category of citizenship. It doesn't revoke your citizenship as a Virginian or an American, but your identity in Christ is what informs how you operate and live in Virginia Beach and in your family and and wherever you are and however you operate, it's being informed by your identity in Christ first and foremost, which makes you a better citizen or member or whatever it is in everything else that you do. It's not the other way around. That's what he's saying here. He's saying he's going to expound upon this throughout the letter, but he's saying that that Christ is our firm foundation, which affects the way that they are to live and operate in Colossae, not the other way around. In other words, the culture of Colossae doesn't inform the way that they live and operate as a Christian. The Colossian culture is itself fickle and shaky ground. And so to be of any true help or blessing while living in Colossae, you got to first live in Christ. That's what he's saying. One of the unique characteristics of first century Colossae was that it was racked by multiple massive earthquakes. So the first one, which brings a little context to this, it was in 17 AD and it was almost obliterated. The whole city almost gets completely crushed by an earthquake and it would have been uh, burned into the memory of that generation in 17 AD and even shaped the way that they thought about the foundations of their society. Just like 9-11 has shaped a generation in our world, that, that earthquake in 17 AD would have really ingrained in that generation. 
So then a generation later, another massive earthquake hit their region in 60 AD, which would have been right around the same time that they received this letter from Paul and Timothy. So this image of being rooted and established and even hidden in Christ would have come to life for them. Think about that. While everything shakes and everything crumbles and everything fades and nothing is really trustworthy, it's like, is this going to hold up? When this whole world shakes, is this going to hold fast? And so when that happens, what they see is that they're able to stand firmly established in Christ, in Colossae. Why? Because they have grace and they have peace from God who is their father. This is the entrance. This is the, the introduction to this letter. It's a grace that doesn't just forgive. It's a grace that empowers them to stand. And it's a peace that doesn't just calm the storms around them. It calms the storms within them. Because of the grace and because of the peace that they have in Christ, they can stand with a whole heart firmly established in Christ as God's legitimate family, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, with an eternal inheritance, a hope that's laid up for them in heaven, not just in Colossae, in that life, but eternal, right? So no wonder Paul's so excited to hear about their faith, right? Like he's, he's not just, again, he's not just excited for their sake, he's also excited for the sake of the rest of Colossae, because there's an entire church in Christ in Colossae. That means that grace and truth and hope and life have come to Colossae. Guys, this is why I pray for the churches in Uvalde or, or in Ukraine. This is why I'm so thankful for the churches in Virginia Beach because you are the body of Christ upon the earth. In fact, little side note, whenever the word saint or priest is used in the New Testament letters, it's always in the plural. Because it's referencing the covenant family, the gospel partnership or fellowship or koinonia of believers. It's always in the plural. It's not a, a, a thing that's done in isolation. This thing's designed to do in partnership with one another together as a local covenant community. That's why it's so necessary. So Paphras didn't just make disciples of Jesus Christ. He planted a church in Colossae. And we're doing the same thing here. That's why we love this stuff so much. Epaphras didn't just make disciples, he planted a church, and he, and he engaged in that. So this is why consistently gathering together is so important. It's not just about you, it's about our entire city and the commission that we've been given in Christ to be firmly established in him. And when we do, we're like pillars of strength or trees of life whose roots go deep in Christ and produce fruit that creates stability in the world that we live in as his kingdom comes down on earth as it is in heaven. Look at verse 3. He says, we always thank God. Say, thank God. God. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Again, one of the defining characteristics that the Colossian church has is that their legitimacy is defined by their love or or it's characterized, identified by their love for all the saints. That's how they're identified as legitimate. It's because they love the saints. They love the other Christians. They love the church, not just themselves. They're not in it for themselves. Their hope is laid up for them in heaven, and they know that these are other brothers and sisters that they have. 
Their hope is in Christ in his kingdom and eternity with each other. It's not what they're hoping for is not just a wispy, like ethereal spiritual world one day where they're just going to float around with like flying babies who play harps, right? That's not the heaven and the new creation that the Bible presents us with. What we're presented with here is a promise that we will live eternally in the presence of Jesus Christ upon a restored earth, terra firma, right? And so I think it's safe to say that if you are in Christ, I, I, I love these kinds of thoughts, by the way. If you are in Christ, I, it, it's likely you'll one day get to meet a member of the Colossian church. Seriously, think about that. If you're in Christ, one day, it might be a billion years from now, but that's how long eternity is. It's great. Right? And so, like, I mean, it's more than a billion, but you get the idea. But, like, this is, like, you get to ask them, maybe, what was it like when you first heard the letter that was read from Paul and Timothy in Colossae? Right? And they get to tell you, it was like, it was like this is great. And you're like, praise God, thank God. And then maybe they'll be like, what was it like reading the letter in Virginia Beach as a church? What was that like? You get to tell them. And all of it just evokes more and more thanksgiving and praise and worship to God for all of it. This is what we get to do for eternity. And it's an eternity that starts now. Back to verse 5. So it says, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it is also, uh, or sorry, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So again, there it is, Right? The symptom of their legitimacy is their love in the Spirit, their love for all the saints. That's how Paul and Timothy and Epaphras know that these Colossians are legitimately in Christ. And they've understood the grace of God in truth, because they're not just focused on themselves, they're focused on everyone else, too. Because this is the gospel, right? That God became a man, he lived the life we couldn't live, he died the death we deserve to die, and he conquered death in the grave, and he paved the way to eternal life, and it's an eternal life that starts now, not just one day when we die, but it starts now through the indwelling Holy Spirit who meets us and rejuvenates us and recreates us from the inside out. And so when you're firmly established in that truth and that reality, it changes the way you see those who are also established in that truth and have that spirit dwelling within them. There's this familial connection that runs deeper than biological blood even. Because you've been grafted into the very family of God by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so you realize that it's not just about you being saved from hell. It's about being redeemed and restored and commissioned into the greatest mission and adventure in eternity. And so in some ways we all get to be like Epaphras, right? We all get to make disciples who make disciples and then, and then bringing the good report to others about what God's doing in and through his people. And the response is always then, like, thanksgiving to God, right? And you pray for them and you praise God for them. And I'm, I'm sure that Paul and Timothy are thankful to Epaphras, right? But more than that, they're thankful for Epaphras to God. We see that here. Right? They're, they're thankful for Epaphras and the rest of the Colossian church, but it says he's thankful to God for the Colossians. 
He's even making it clear, I'm thanking God for you. And I love to hear what God's doing in your community groups, right? Like, I love, it's one of my favorite things to hear the reports of what God is doing from your community group leaders, like how people are growing and maturing in their relationships, how to hear what God is doing in your lives. I love it. I love it. Like, to hear how people are, are sharing the gospel or some people are coming to Christ and they're growing in their relationship and, and like, kind of many epaphrases, just kind of, like, bringing a good report. I love it. It's like your community group leaders get to be these epaphrases. You get to bring these reports and, and, and you just see how God is moving uh, through people at work or while on deployment, all, all kinds of stuff, right? And so then I get to be like Epaphras too. Because when I get to take these good reports back to the people that you may have never even uh, known or met, maybe you've not even heard of them, but they're praying for you. I get to bring that report and they're thankful for you. And they're praising God for you about all that he's doing in and through risen church. Look at verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. So as soon as Paul and Timothy hear about what's happening in Colossae, they begin to pray for them unceasingly. Which is both a challenge and an encouragement to us. I want you to see this. Second encouragement is you are prayed for now why does paul want them to know that they've been prayed for he wants them to know that they've been praised that, that that god has been praised on their behalf and that they are praying for them unceasingly but why it's because the most important part about being firmly established in christ is prayer prayer is the connection point between you and god and Paul and Timothy got this, man. They deeply understood this. And so they likely realized that as a young church, the Colossians probably didn't fully understand the extreme need they have to be prayerful and thankful. And so Paul and Timothy are letting them know that they are praying and thanking God even on their behalf. They're not just telling them what it looks like to be firmly established in Christ. They're showing them. And they're showing them the part of the, the, are part of the reason for what God's doing in their midst is the result of prayers that have been prayed over them because they're not alone. I want you to see this. They've been and are continuing to be prayed for, and it matters. Risen church, you need to know you're being prayed for. You have been prayed for. Like there's people who have consistently prayed for you over the years, like many who you don't know. And you may not ever know, right? Some whom you will, like we've had some guest speakers and whatnot, they've come in and they get to share with us, but, but you need to know that we're not just a pool over here in Virginia Beach. Like we're a part of a river of disciple-making disciples and church planting, churches planting churches that stretch all the way back to the first century. Maybe all the way back probably to Colossae and Ephesus. And by probably, I'd say definitely. Like we're a part of a church planting network our, our, network, one of our network is called uh, Acts 29, right? There, there's, there's only 28 chapters in the book of Acts, and it kind of ends abruptly, right? Um, and, and Paul is imprisoned in Rome, which is when he, uh, most people believe he wrote this letter to the Colossians. He's in the 28th chapter, or the last chapter of Acts. And so our network's called Acts 29 because 
the chapter 28 closes with people making disciples who make disciples and planting churches and plant churches, and then it sort of just intentionally ends kind of unfinished, implying that we are to write the next chapter. We are Acts 29. Everyone, every one of us, we are making disciples who make disciples and planting churches that plant churches. And so the Colossians were then to continue the work that the apostles began. So we are also a part of a group called the Summit Collaborative, which launched uh, out of a church in North Carolina that set a goal in 2011 of planting a thousand churches in one generation. That was their goal, right? And so the lead pastor there actually led me to Christ as a teenager, and uh, my wife and I were commissioned by them a few years ago after receiving some training there in North Carolina to come here to Virginia Beach. And so we recently uh, were able to go back to the summit with a few um, few of our friends, and we, we got to kind of sort of bring some Epaphras reports kind of thing, you know, that's kind of what was happening, and, um, you know, they, they also were commissioned from the summit uh, over the years to plant other churches, and so we got to, again, bring these good reports about what God's been doing in and through Risen, and they actually made a brief uh, video of a handful of our stories to share with our, their church there um, who has been praying for us. And so I want you to see that we play a small but significant part in a much bigger picture. So I don't know if we have the video. Do we have it? All right. So we'll see. The power was crazy this morning. So turn your attention to the screen and we'll see if we've got it. Do we have it? Yeah. You turn up. All right. So this is Brian Barley and he's saying blah, blah, blah. (laughs) This is Chuck. Do we have the sound now? These are different church planters from the summit that were sent out uh, over the years, just a handful of them, um, and they're just sharing some of the things that, that yeah, hey, look, there, there's one. <laughs> so these are guys that actually have critiqued the snot out of my preaching and, and vice versa, but um, is, it, is the sound going to work? If not, it's okay. All right, so um, the, the point there is that I wanted you to see that it was just quick, brief um, snapshots of what God's been doing in and through our churches. And one of the things that I got to share was that we, are, we have uh, people who we have baptized who baptize other people. That's one of the, you guys know, that's like my favorite thing in the world. I love that stuff, yeah. So I want you to see that so, so far the summit has actually planted 59 churches in the United States and 503 total throughout the world. That's awesome. And so now they are, again, one of many churches that have partnered with us and are praying for us um, as we, in turn, have partnered in prayer and support with many other churches as well. In fact, um, just since 2018, we've given well over $80,000 to church planting, both nationally and internationally. Uh, Just us. I'm talking risen, right? And so... We, we've been able to partner with people like Craig and Danielle Eggleton in, in, as they plant churches in the unreached areas of India. Um, we've been able to support church planting networks like Josiah Venture in Ukraine. Um, we even uh, had someone from our church recently connect with them on the ground uh, in Ukraine. Um, and so these church planters have, have become, especially in a place that's so hard, you talk about being firmly established in a war zone, Right? And so these church, these church networks, we partnered with them, and, and, and uh, I got some recent stats from them, um, and they, uh, they said that just in the past 
couple of months, they've been able to evacuate 3,280 Ukrainians into the EU. This is the church, okay? 3,280 Ukrainians into the EU on 51 rented buses and 2,190 from active war zones to Western Ukrainian vans. 539 tons of food and medical aid have been sent in thus far to people in need through our buses and 22 semi-trucks. I'm reading this from them. This is what they updated us with. And then 1.437 million estimated meals have been provided. Tens of thousands, I got, hold on, hold on. <laughs> tens of thousands of psalm booklets we created on February 25th. This is probably my favorite one. Whew. It was right after my birthday. It was a good present to them. Tens of thousands of psalm booklets were created on February 25th called 22 Days of Encouragement in Times of Crisis have been distributed both in Ukraine and to refugees abroad. Guys, that is something worth praising God for, right? And so on top of all of that, even Acts 29 itself, the network, has seen 30 brand new churches planted within just our network just last year in 2021 coming out of the pandemic. And it's actually pretty incredible. And then as a result of all that, there are apparently hundreds of planters in the pipeline right now to crush that number going forward in the next few years. So this is what we do. It's a commission that we've been given, and it should provoke and evoke deep thanksgiving in us and prayer for them right to be firmly established and tap into what paul and timothy are praying over the colossians and what we've had prayed over us and as they do they're being firmly established and deeply rooted and hidden in jesus christ you see this this is the great commission we've been given and hear me again it's not just to save people from hell Now, if that's all it was about, then that would be enough, right? But it's not just about salvation from hell. It's about rooting and establishing people in the love and grace and truth of Jesus Christ. It's about bringing living hope to a hopeless world and a firm foundation in the midst of a crumbling society that's built upon shifting sands. Isaiah 61, 3, the last little portion here, speaks of God's people prophesying that they may be called oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And they may be called oaks of righteousness, a prophecy of what God was going to do through his people. That they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And so my prayer is that you would be oaks of righteousness and your roots would run deep, firmly established in Christ being nourished by him in all that you do, producing fruit. That's what this passage is about. And again, that happens through prayer and thanksgiving. Again, I'm not just talking about before meals and before bed. Like, that's important. But I'm talking about the unceasing posture of mindfulness and intentionality before the Lord. Like, walking with Him, talking with Him, thanking Him and crying out to Him, not only for what you want or need, but also for those around you. And so it's how we're called to live, prayerfully, rooted in His Word and in His presence, in Christ in Virginia Beach. Jackie Hill Perry once uh, wrote this about prayer. She said, prayerlessness is almost always a humility issue. 
We'd like to believe that we don't pray because of busyness or that we just lack discipline and need to, quote, do better. At the end of the day, though, we're just a proud bunch. Pride deludes us into thinking we're self-sufficient, that our jobs supply our needs, our relationships provide comfort, our intellect and ambition made us successful. But in fact, everything you are and everything you have is because God reigns on the just and the unjust. So then, to become more prayerful, we have to be honest, literally embracing the reality that we are perpetually needy even when it doesn't feel like it. And you might say, okay, but how do I pray? Like, what do I even specifically pray for, right? Well, I'm glad you asked. Paul and Timothy give us a little insight into what they've been unceasingly praying over the Colossians, which is really helpful for us also. This gets real practical, okay? So look here with me, back to verse 9. It says, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And then verse 10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So let's break this down. He sums it all up by saying, or, or, or asking that you may be filled, quote, filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That sums up the whole prayer. That's what he's after. That's what he's praying over the Colossians. Everything flows out of that. And he wants you to know God's will, but he's not just saying that he wants you to just to, to do what God wants you to do. It, this is a highly relational prayer. It's not about just getting the marching orders and then checking out. It's about having spiritual wisdom and understanding. It's highly relational. This is about having sensitivity to his spirit and his desires to be able to navigate life as it comes to you in every moment. So we're going to see that spiritual wisdom is another big theme throughout this whole letter. Like, I can't emphasize the need to pray for wisdom enough. It's a prayer that God promises to answer. And I encourage you, if you're not asking God for wisdom every single day, you should do it. Every day. Spiritual wisdom and understanding, right? For yourselves and for one another. And this only comes through spending time with the Lord and his people in his presence and in his word. So if you're asking for spiritual wisdom and understanding, but you're not reading his word, like if you're, if you're praying and you're like, God, make me wise, but you're not joining together with his people in his word, in his presence, you're saying no to his wisdom, right? And so then you're not really posturing yourselves to receive these prayers that are being prayed over you, nor do you mean these prayers when you pray them. That's just the reality of it. You can be worldly wise, but that's no use at all. That just makes you insecure or probably overconfident and pressing your insecurity just deeper, like a Band-Aid over a bullet wound, right? What we need is spiritual wisdom and understanding, and that's what he's praying over us. And then posturing ourselves to receive these prayers, right? And so then... Um, 
he then prays this prayer of wisdom over them, and then like three subpoints here under that, he says that they would be pleasing and fruitful and thankful. Okay? And so verse 10, it says, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Now, I love this. Like, why would we want to please him? Because he's worthy. Right? Not because we get anything from him, just because he's worthy. That's it. That's it. Why do you give to God? Because he's worthy. I, why do I give God? Why do I tithe? Why do I do that stuff? Because I want a new car? No, because he's worthy. That's it. That's it. Will he take care of the rest? Yes, he promises to. That's not why we do it, right? Now, remember, this isn't just a command that Paul and Timothy are praying. These are the things that they are unceasingly praying over the Colossians. They're not just praying it for themselves, they're praying it for others, that they would be filled with all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Like, is that the desire of your heart, to please, to be fully pleasing to God? Now, some might say here, you know, that, well, of course we're pleasing to God just because we're saved in Christ, right? We're saved by Christ, therefore we're pleasing to God, right? No matter what I do, no matter how I operate, I'm pleasing to God because of the cross, Right? Right? You're like, I don't know what to do here. <laughs> that is true. Accepted is probably the better way to put that, though. Accepted and loved, and there's nothing you can do to make him love you anymore, and there's nothing that you've done to make him love you any less. That is the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? However, you can grieve the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4.30 makes it clear. You can grieve him. Which means he's going, I love you. I got you. You're mine. This ain't about heaven and hell anymore. But you can grieve daddy's heart, right? It's not a lifestyle that's trying to earn salvation. It's a lifestyle of worship that responds to our salvation. That's what we're after. And if you don't care about that, then you might actually not have salvation. Right? Because if you don't care about the heart of God... What are we doing here? Right? So when I was about 15, I tried to train a, a, a retriever, Chesapeake Bay Retriever named Cody. That was his name. I tried to train him to duck hunt. 15 years old, 15-year-old John. Picture me, stubborn, kept pretty stupid. Um, so I got him when he was a puppy, and I spent a lot of time working with him, right? And, and, and I, I made the one big mistake, though, of using a lot of treats to get him to do what I wanted him to do, Right? You ever done this? And we train a dog, and you like hold the, the treat, and he sits, and he's like, yeah. And then you give him the treat, and he's gone. He doesn't care anything. He's like, you know. Like, he listened as long as I had treats in my hand, but the moment the treats ran out, so did Cody, chasing the wind, right? And so a lot of people treat Jesus this way. As long as they get what they want in the moment, they listen. Otherwise, they're off doing their own thing, and it grieves his heart. Cody didn't live very long, actually, um, because he, he lived, it's true, he, he lived by whatever his belly, his belly craved in the moment, and that's dangerous in this world, even for dogs, right? So when I was 17, I got another dog. His name was Cole. He was a black lab. He was great. This time, instead of using treats, I just praised him a lot whenever he did what I asked. Like, I would flip, I'd be so excited, hug him, pet him, wag his tail, lick me. It was great. Like, it was just very highly relational with him. And he got lots of treats, but not because he was obedient. They were just because I loved him, right? And so that dog was awesome. 
Like he cared way more about pleasing me than any treat that I could offer him. His greatest pleasure came from my pleasure in him, and his entire world was all about pleasing his master. He would deny his most base instincts if it meant me delighting in him. Not because he feared what I would do, but because he truly wanted me to be pleased with him. That's why I could put a treat on his nose and be like, ah, and he'd be like, I want to eat it, but I trust you, you know. And then when he did eat it, he got both the treat and the praise, and he, and he was delighted. Like, he wasn't just trying to figure out what he could get away with. He only cared about what pleased his master, and as a result, he lived a very long, healthy life. And he was a great dog. God used those two dogs to teach me a lot about spiritual wisdom. Look back at verse 10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Like spiritual wisdom. Spiritual wisdom is fruitful. That doesn't necessarily mean that you're successful at everything you attempt to do because God is more concerned with what he's doing in you than what he's doing through you. And so the true fruitfulness of spiritual wisdom is that you increase in the knowledge of God even if you fail at the task at hand. If you do that, so no matter what you do, if you do it in a manner that's worthy of the Lord with the desire to please him, then win, lose, or draw, you grow in Christ, which is the point of the prayer. That's what spiritual fruit looks like. That should be freeing to you. You even have the freedom to fail. And there's fruit there, right? Like while the rest of the world crumbles around you because their hope was set upon that promotion or that success or that stock market or that politician or some other fickle earthly circumstance, you get to be rooted and grounded and firmly established in the love of God in Christ Jesus. And like a tree of life, in the midst of a scorched desert, you produce refuge and foundation. Not because you're so great, but because your roots are firmly established in the one who is. Now, this is what Paul and Timothy are praying for the Colossians, and this is what I am praying over you. And the next thing they prayed for here is that the Colossians, uh, was that they would be thankful. Say thankful. So again, it's almost like a sandwich of thanksgiving in this passage. Verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So he points them back to how thankful he and Timothy were to God for them, and he's now emphasizing how important it is that they also thank God as their Father who's qualified them to share in the family inheritance as legitimate children or heirs. Do you thank God for qualifying you? Or do you find yourself complaining all the time about how unqualified you are? Paul and Timothy are praying for you to take your eyes off of yourself and place them firmly on the Lord. He himself has qualified you in Christ. Like to wallow in condemnation is to deny the grace that he's offered you. And so it's important to thank him and to posture your life in a state of thanksgiving with an attitude of gratitude in all things, right? So this is how our roots grow deep in him, and this is how we grow in spiritual wisdom and understanding. This is how we live firmly established in Christ as his pleasing, fruitful, and thankful church. 
which leads me to the final encouragement and challenge. You've been qualified and transferred. Now it's your turn. Right? Verse 13. This is two verses. It's essentially the gospel of Jesus Christ. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred, say transferred, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So Paul's verifying the Colossians by the fruitfulness of their faith in Christ, their love for one another, and the hope in what lays ahead rather than what is in this world. He's saying you're qualified, you're legitimate, you're no longer under the domain of darkness and the rules by which that world operates. You've been set free into an entirely different kingdom. It's the kingdom of the sons and daughters of the most high king. This is where he rules and reigns. And so completely forgiven, you're completely redeemed, and now it's time to live by that power of the one who raised Christ from the dead. And so here's your challenge. It's your turn. It's your turn to pray. It's your turn to thank God. It's your turn to enter in and be that refuge for the world around you. Or point to the one who is the refuge and be his hands and feet. It's your turn to preach. It's your turn to engage, embrace, equip, empower, and encourage one another in the truth of the gospel. It's your turn to take up the mantle of Epaphras. It's your turn to live as those firmly established oaks of righteousness in a sin-scorched world. And so one practical way that you can receive this commission is to begin to pray, not just for yourself, which is a good thing. You should pray these things over yourself and your family, absolutely. But I want you to pray this over other people this week. So this is your challenge. I I want you to pray for two specific people this week. Every day, this week. One person from our church, I want you to choose someone from our church to pray for, and one person who lives in our city but is far from God. And I want you to begin to pray these things over them. I want you to pray for the Christian in our church. I want you to pray verse 9 through 12 over them. Every day. One person, I want you to choose every day. Through the same person each day of the week. Okay? And I want you to thank God for them. And then I want you to pray that they would be pleasing and then fruitful and thankful. And then if you miss a day, it's okay. Don't miss out on today's feast because of yesterday's famine. Just keep going and operate in the grace of God. Don't be like, oh, I missed it. I might as well just quit. Don't do that. That's nonsense, right? Keep going. His grace is sufficient for you. This is the power of it, right? And so for the one that, who is far from God, I want you to pray verse 13 and 14 over them. I want you to pray that they would receive their qualification in Christ and be transferred from the domain of darkness into his kingdom of beloved sons and daughters. That's what I want you to pray over them every day. And I'm looking forward to to reading the praise reports that come from these prayers this week as we grow deeper and even more firmly established in Christ through prayer and thanksgiving. Let's pray.